Welcome to the I Am Somebody podcast, a collaborative project with Focus Recovery and Wellness Community, NAMI Hancock County, and LGBTQ Spectrum of Finley. In this podcast, we'll hear stories of recovery from mental health conditions, substance use, and trauma. We'd like to let you all know that the subject matter of this podcast may be challenging to some listeners. The views and opinions expressed in the I Am Somebody podcast are those of the individuals being recorded and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Focus Recovery and Wellness Community, NAMI Hancock County, and LGBTQ Spectrum of Finley. Stay tuned after the podcast for resources if you are in need of mental health, substance use, or trauma services. I Am Somebody. 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 I am Sharona and I am somebody. Welcome to I Am Somebody. I'm Bailey and I'm here with my co-host Larry. Greetings travelers. Today we've got Sharona here to share her story. How are you doing today Sharona? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Are you? I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) <laughs> Good. Um, so, Sharona, our listeners don't have the privilege of knowing you, so why don't you start by just sharing a little bit about who you are so they can know who we're talking to. Okay, so my name is Sharona Bishop. Um, I currently work at Hancock Public Health. Uh, I'm on the harm reduction team. I'm a huge advocate for those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders, um, and we, as a team, wait a minute, I don't like that. <laughs> you as a team you don't like that no we um we at the health department um yeah our whole purpose is to keep people safe healthy and alive um but that's not my whole as a person um i am a mother of four i have three adult children and one brand new grandbaby um so that's congratulations thank you thank you yeah he's perfect um yeah so that's it i'm a person in long-term recovery i will hopefully be celebrating eight years this september awesome yeah early congratulations to that as well thank you Gotta make it there first. Well, you can have your <laughs> congratulations for your seven years and however many days today is. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so what are you hoping comes from sharing your story today? Um, so my hope is I know for myself when I was struggling with addiction and mental health, there were a few people that came into my life unexpectedly, either as um, a friend, uh, a role model, a counselor, just somebody that showed me kindness and compassion and what they shared with me with their journey and their story um, is what gave me hope and made me not wanna give up and continue fighting for what life is today. So I just kind of want to be that light for somebody else. I appreciate your recognition of those people's roles in your life and taking that next step in your own journey to be that for others as well. Thank you. All right. So this is your story. So you get to drive this bus. So wherever you want to jump in, go for it. 
hold on tight guys so, <laughs> <laughs> you know i wrecked two cars in one year so this ride might get a little bumpy <laughs> we are ready <laughs> okay so um i guess i'll start with you know where it all began um my childhood was not your normal happy family um you know i grew up with a lot of trauma, but it was so normal to me. I didn't realize it was traumatic stuff until I got older um, and started learning about life and coping mechanisms and uh, not doing drugs. <laughs> um, you know, like I'll be sharing bits of my story with somebody and I'll be talking to them like just a normal Tuesday happened and they're like, holy crap. And I'm like, what? That's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do on Tuesday? Right, right. Um, so I grew up, it was me and my mom. You know, I had a few stepdads here and there. Um, but my mom, she worked in the bars. And um, when she wasn't working in the bars, she was in the bars drinking. Um, and I grew up in a very small town. And I wasn't the only kid that was raised in these bars. Like, Bucyrus was small, but it was, everybody looked out for everybody. It was different times, 80s and 90s. You know, we were, as young kids, running the streets at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, but there was always somebody's house and somebody's parent, like, keeping an eye on us. Um, my... My grandfather was the president of the Outlaws and a cocaine dealer. Um, and when I was five years old, um, his house got raided and he went to prison. Um, but I knew what cocaine was at a very young age. Um, nothing was ever hidden from me. Like I said, I just thought that this was normal mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I got older, and started going to like my friends' houses and stuff and realizing like, oh, like their parents aren't wasted and there's not a big party here. Like we're actually doing kids stuff and going places and doing fun things. Um, and that's kind of when D.A.R.E. came out. So I was like a hardcore D.A.R.E. Nazi. <laughs> um, so it got, no, it got to the point where when my mother would send me to school, she'd have to tell me like, okay, don't tell them what goes on at home or they'll take you away from me. Mm -hmm. So that was probably sixth grade, seventh grade. So that's a lot of heavy stuff. But once again, like this was normal for mm -hmm. me. I'm like, don't worry, mom, I got your back. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I also grew up around a lot of domestic violence situations. Um, you know, my, I, I've, I've seen my mom get in bar fights. I've seen her get in fights with her spouses. Um, and I always swore that, you know, I'm never, that's never gonna be a part of my life. Like when I'm, when I'm grown and out on my own, like nobody's ever gonna lay a hand on me. I'm not gonna be a violent person. Um, that's, not, that's not how I wanna live my life. Um, but then start getting into those early teen years, preteen years, and growing up around the partying and what I thought was normal, I started 
binge drinking on the weekends at 12 years old. You know, uh, my mom had a family friend. I would clean his house on the weekends and he would pay me with a 12 pack of Zima and a 12 pack of Bud Ice Light. So I always supplied the alcohol and we'd find the party at some another friend's house. Um, and then I started smoking, smoking pot around 14. And I knew, and forgive me if I'm all over the place, because... <laughs> tell her how you need to okay. tell her. Yeah, that's the rule. Tell how you need to tell it. <laughs> so, you know, my grandfather went to prison for selling cocaine. Um, and then as I got older and was going through what I was going through, my mom also, like, once he went away, she got into selling pot. So when I started smoking pot at 14... Um, and I was, I never hid anything from my mom because I never had to. Mm -hmm. Like she would let us drink at the house because in her defense, she knew I was going to be doing it anyway, but she wanted to be able to keep an eye on me. And she, you know, I never had to worry about getting in the car with anybody drinking or driving because if I was somewhere and we had to leave, like she would come get us. Um, my mom did the best she could with how she was raised. And I, I, I see that now. I see that today. But seeing what I saw growing up, I swore my children would never see that. So <laughs> when I started smoking pot, my mom found out, you know, she was like super excited because now she had a party buddy and then eventually started selling it to my friends. <laughs> uh, so, you know, at 15 years old, like I was her... I was her little hustler. Like I was transporting, like I was taking pot to school and I would always upcharge because that's when I started smoking cigarettes. So back in early nineties, you could buy a bag of weed for 20 bucks and I'd always charge 2250 so I could get a pack of cigarettes with the money. So I learned at a very early age how to hustle. Um, I but, love that you didn't <laughs> you didn't upcharge any more than that. Just what you needed. Not right. I wasn't greedy, man. Like I, I knew what I needed and I was going to take care of it myself. Like that's what you learn always living in survival mode. I graduate. Actually, I didn't graduate high school. My senior year, I had been with my daughter's dad for <clears throat> four and a half years. My senior year, I got pregnant with her. Um, I was working full time at a gas station and also going to school full time. And at this time, her father was um, doing some extracurricular activities of his own and not coming home. Um, and I moved in with him at 15 years old. So I was, you know, supporting our household um, because we had a baby coming. And um, that's when I, you know, I couldn't, being pregnant and working full-time and going to school full-time and being the main provider, um, I, I couldn't do it. So I knew I had to take a step back from school so I could have a home for my child to live in. Um, but I, I did get my GED a year later, um, even though I partied a lot and I missed a lot of school. I, I always kept a good grade point average. Like, just because I was an addict, I, it doesn't mean I was stupid. Like, very, thank I, like, you for saying so. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I would like to think I am a, an educated person. Like, it doesn't always come out that way because I don't have a filter either sometimes. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. 
my daughter's dad and I ended up splitting up when she was only six months old. So then I, I became a single mother. And then when she was about three is when I met the father of my, my two sons. And that is when, that is when my life spiraled completely out of control. Um, he was, he was selling cocaine and other things heavily. I started doing massive amounts of cocaine. Um, I ended up letting my daughter go live with her father at five years old because I was putting her in the same situation that I grew up around and I knew that wasn't okay. Um, and I, people say if you, you, you don't love your child if you can give them up for drugs or if you can't give up drugs for your children and that's not the case. Um, that is not the case at all. I have never not loved my children but when you are in active addiction, uh, there's just this force that grabs a hold of you that you need it to survive. Um, and this darkness in this hole that you're just trying to fill. <clears throat> um, so I ended up having my oldest son in 2002. Um, and this is after being with his father for a few years. And I mean, it was already volatile and toxic and um, there was domestic violence going on. You know, we were having physical altercations on a regular basis. Um, cops were called several times. Um, then I had my son um, and then nine months later, I found out I was pregnant with my other son. And, you know, I, I stayed in this volatile relationship for almost 10 years um, because after having one child with one man, I swore, like, I'm not going to have multiple children with multiple, like, I'm going to make this work, whether it kills me or not. And it almost did. Um, but it got to the point where, you know what, I, I, I can't do this anymore for the safety of myself and my children. Um, and it's just, it's toxic. So I, I left him. Um, but I was also working in a factory at this time. And that's when my doctor started giving me Percocet because I would wake up in the morning and my hands would be so swollen um, and stiff like it looked like I had two baseball mitts on and I couldn't like I couldn't even open the bottle of juice for my children in the morning to get them something to drink so he right off the bat starts giving me 180 Percocet to begin with a month um, and that's a lot yeah that's a lot to give at one time yeah and this was 2004 so I mean it was they haven't they hadn't really yeah, that's on poor on par for 2004 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's kind of when like they didn't realize how addictive or they were just starting to realize how addictive but doctors were just prescribing left and right mm -hmm. and let me just say like I started early very young drinking alcohol and smoking pot and you know, I, I tried LSD at 14 and, um, you know, I was doing ecstasy at 18 and, you know, the cocaine and the, like, I even smoked crack and 
all of those things that I did, even if I would do them for like long periods of time, I could always put them down and walk away from it. Like I never had a problem. Like, you know what? Like to get my job, my factory job, um, making $24 an hour, like they did random drug tests. I'm like, no problem. Like, and I quit everything. But once I started taking the Percocet, I turned into a whole nother person. Um, after getting the prescription for four months, I was running out after two weeks. Um, and then I was buying more. So I'm not a very big person. <laughs> and back in the early 2000s, I was smaller than what I am now. And when you're taking massive amounts of narcotics, like I don't know how I, I didn't overdose back then. Mm -hmm. um, because I wasn't eating because, you know, if you're taking narcotics, you realize like, well, if I eat, my buzz is going to go away. So, and then I'll have to take more. So you don't want to do that. Um, it was finally in 2009 was the first time I attempted to get clean. Um, it was, I was actually going to the University of Finley and I was working as a assistant manager at Ruby Tuesday, working full time plus, and I had my, my two boys living with me, trying to be a full time mother as well. And I also had a $500 a day pill habit. And I maintained this for two years. Don't ask me how, <laughs> you know, and you know, people, I talk to people about me going to college. Like I, I don't think I retained anything those two years in college. I, I, how could you? I don't um, know how you could. Yeah. Um, so finally, like it was to the point where even though I had pills, I was still going through withdrawal. Like no amount of pills I could take would take that, that withdrawal feeling away. Like I was, and I, I didn't realize what it was at the time. Like, like I said, this was before, like we had the harm reduction, we had like withdrawal management, any of that stuff. Like I really thought that I was dying um, because I didn't understand how it could be withdrawal when I had an ample supply of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first time um, I drove myself. Actually, my boy's father came and picked me up. He's like, I will take you because I know you've got a problem, even though, you know, he would join in with me occasionally. Um, he took me to St. Rita's in Lima. And that was when they still had their detox unit there. And <laughs> I, I get in there and the first two days like it, I was like the exorcist uh, I didn't get out of bed I didn't get I didn't shower um, they made me get up and go see the doctor because you know they did all my blood work and tested all my organs and things like that mm -hmm. and the doctor came in and saw me and he said you weigh 98 pounds right now you had enough narcotics in your system to drop a large horse he's like that next pill could have very well been your last um, and that scared me because I wasn't ready to die. I didn't want to die. Um, I just didn't know how to live. Um, but it was my third day in and I call to talk to my mom and she tells me that uh, the boy's dad filed for emergency temporary custody and I wasn't getting my kids back. So I said, come get me now, I'm leaving. 
I'm not going to allow that to happen. Well, <laughs> we go to court and with my history, um, and my mother actually testified against me in court, um, because she didn't think that I was fit to raise my children, which she was correct. Um, I, like I said, I don't know how I functioned for as long as I did and nobody got seriously hurt. Um, gosh, where am I at now? Um, I had multiple attempts, you know, um, I tried IOP, I tried detox a couple more times. Uh, I, I dabbled in treatment for the next five years, four years. It was 2013. And let me tell you, like, you get tired after a while. You get really, really tired of living this life. And um, I was taking care of this older gentleman doing some private home health care for about a year. Um, and I would stay overnight because he'd have to get up. I'd have to help him to the restroom throughout the night. Um, and I, like, like I said, I'm a drug addict. I'm not a heartless, cold person. Like I genuinely cared about this man. Um, but I was stealing pills from him. Well, uh, his wife was, she had some suspicions. So her, their children set up cameras. And the thing about it is, is the day that I got caught, I knew I was being set up because things were just off. The pills were in a different spot. His wallet was sitting right beside the pill bottle with money sticking out. And I didn't touch, I didn't want the money. I wanted the pills. Um, but I knew I was being set up and I didn't care because I was tired. I needed a change and I didn't know how to do it myself. God damn it. Sorry. It's okay. I told you I was going to be emotional today. <laughs> um, so stealing narcotics, especially from a vulnerable population, is frowned upon. Uh, that's when I got my first felony charge. <clears throat> um, they put me on community control and this was in Wyandotte County. Um, putting, putting me on probation didn't help. Like I was required to go to counseling. I was required to t pass my drug tests and you know, you try treatment for so, so long and you do drugs long enough, you know how to pass a drug screen. Um, even with children's services involved at this point, I left that whole part out. Um, of course, when my children got taken away, children's services automatically got involved because there were drugs involved. Um, but I was passing their drug tests, even getting high the day before or the day of. You get real good at it. Um, like I said, I used my powers for good instead of evil today. <laughs> <laughs> um, being on probation, uh, I had a probation officer that was participating in some unethical things with me. Uh, and let's just say, yes, I was sleeping with my probation officer. He was 
giving me alcohol. He was not making me take drug screens. Um, and I was not the only probation office or probationer that he was doing this with. Uh, he ultimately got let go. Um, and I had to get a restraining order against him because after he got let go, um, he would still show up at my house. Uh, and it got kind of scary. Um, and that is when I had been, I had already switched from snorting pills to um, IV use. I was shooting heroin um, because it was cheaper. And I was also mixing the heroin with Xanax and alcohol, which is a deadly combination. And <clears throat> the day that I, so I was on probation. I had taken quite a few Xanax, drank a bottle of wine. I decided it was a great idea to, I had my children at the time. I loaded them into the car, went to a so-called friend's house, and I went into the bathroom with her, and that is the last thing I remember. I wake up in the emergency room with a police officer in my face, screaming at me, you know you're getting charged with an internal possession. How can you do this? Like, you had your children with you. What the hell is wrong with you? And me just coming out of an overdose, like, you don't really have any, I didn't have any feeling. Like, I was still like, oh, I got this. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I had to see my new probation officer the very next day, and she was like, what the hell? what's going on? I'm like, well, I overdosed. She's like, okay, like, let's, I want to start seeing you every day. You're coming in every day for drug screens. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Well, two days after I had overdosed, I was smoking crack all night and I go in to see my probation officer the next day. And she's like, I don't know what else to do with you. She's like, you've got 17 months, uh, prison time hanging over your head. She's like, I got to send you. She's like, or you're going to die. And she was right. Um, because at that time, I had a death wish and I was on a suicide mission and I didn't see any hope. And don't get me wrong, like, like I said earlier, there were people that had inserted themselves in my life or I, therapists that I'd seen that were in recovery um, throughout this whole journey that they've always stuck with me. So there were little glimpses of hope here and there, um, but I feel like I was just so far gone and I, I never in my life had solid support. Like I didn't know what solid support looked like. I didn't realize that there were, like to have a good friend, you also had to be a good friend. Like I didn't understand that concept. Um, but it was, before you go to prison, you have to get a pre-sentence investigation where, like, you basically lay your whole life story out there. So the judge has a little bit of backstory of, like, what brought you to this point mm -hmm. before they make their decision. And when I went in front of the judge, before I went away, when she sentenced me and she was reading my pre-sentence in investigation, she said something profound to me that I'd never even thought of. Like, I'm sure I had a thought, but to have somebody call me out on it that day 
that was my turning point. She said, Sharona, Miss Bishop, let me rephrase that, Miss Bishop, you blame your mother for everything that's happened to you in your entire life. And she's like, don't get me wrong. Like, she said, you had a pretty rough childhood. She said, but you are doing the exact same thing to your children and putting them through what she put you through. And I don't know why her, like, it took her saying that to me, like, holy shit. That is exactly what I never wanted in my life. (laughs) And here I am. And it's even worse. Like, you can't really compare addictions and traumas and things like that. But I just, like, the day that I overdosed, my two sons witnessed me die. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) you know, and that's, you know, we're at a place now where we can, we talk about it. Like, I have three adult children and we are open and have these discussions and you know i look at it i taught them a lot of what not to do because i i'd like to say they're all doing pretty damn well and i'm i I can't believe how well they've turned out considering the shit that was thrown at them um but yeah uh, that day in court it really opened my eyes and um i was going to marysville and you grow up in a small town, I don't care like what kind of lifestyle you live, it's a whole different story when you go to a women's prison with almost 5,000 women and I'm talking, you're in there with murderers, rapists, um, and you know, I'm an addict, I, I'm a nonviolent offender, like, I made poor choices and I stole a lot of things And I'm not justifying any of that, but I could never imagine like harming another individual. So I, when I, when I step foot into that prison and I just see, I'm like, oh my God, if I don't change my life, I'm either going to spend the rest of my life here or I'm going to be dead. And I'm not ready to accept either one of those things right now. And I don't want people to get, I know, like I have to be very careful because I do say that, um, prison saved my life. That's not the case for everybody. I've seen people go in and come out a lot worse than what they went in. Mm -hmm. So that is a very slippery slope right there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was lucky enough, you know, I had 17 months hanging over my head. I was able to get my judicial release after six months and go straight to treatment. Um, So that six month period I had to clear my head. And don't get me wrong, like I could have stayed high that whole time in there. It's very easy to get stuff in prison. Um, it's expensive, but it's possible. Um, and, you know, the first 30 days going through withdrawal. <sighs> so they gave me a week before I went away. I told you I'm all over the place. So the day that I turned myself in, knowing that I was going away, I took a handful of methadone and a handful of Xanax because I did not want to wake up and I did not want to go to Marysville. So my higher power had other plans (laughs) because I'm still here. Um, But I basically slept the first five days and then was in excruciating withdrawal sickness and going through withdrawal in a state prison that the CEOs don't care they they 
do not take kindly to it. Um, you know, they offered or threatened to offered to throw me in the hole if I didn't get my ass out of bed and get in the shower because I was disgusting, um, which they were right. Uh, you can only go so long with uh, personal hygiene before you start to offend your very close neighbors. <laughs> um, but no, I, I did my six months there. I went to Crossway and Tiffin for six months and... I met one of my very best friends still today in Crossway, um, and she's doing, I'm so proud of her. Um, out of the 36 women that I was in there with, I wanna say there are three of us that have stayed clean, and 12 of them have, we've lost to overdose. So those aren't very good odds. Um, but I actually met her father and stepmom would come in during visitation and they were like N.A. Nazis and her father, he just actually celebrated, I want to say 18 years clean. So I knew like, okay, when I get out, you're my people. I know I can't go back to the people, places and things before. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I did. Um, and I also have to give a shout out to my other best friend, Nikki. She... Her and I were very close until my addiction got really bad. And then she had to take a step back because she went through her father had a heroin addiction and she knew like, I can't, I can't allow you around my family like this, which I totally respected that. So the day I got home, it was the day I got home from my, I call it my one year vacation because I was gone a year and my state vacation. <laughs> uh, she reached out to me. And she said, okay, are you ready to do this? And I said, yes, I am. And she's like, I got your back. And I lived with her and her husband my first three months home. Um, and I, I couldn't be where I am today without her and my friend Brittany that I met at Crossway. Like, that's the first time I ever experienced true, honest, like support and friendship and just love. Mm -hmm. Like, holy shit, this is what love feels like. <laughs> Somebody that is going to be here for me, no questions asked and have my back and not expect anything in return. But I also realized like in this process, like I had become that person too, because I didn't want to be the untrustworthy, not responsible, um, not reliable, person that I had been um yeah so I started working you know I was going to my meetings every, sometimes two meetings a day but I was going to a meeting every day I got a sponsor I worked my 12 steps took a real long hard look at myself like that fourth step is a doozy <laughs> you do your own moral inventory um that was a rough one but I got through it and I learned a lot about myself through that process and learned a lot of what I needed to do to become a better person for my children. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I'd gotten a job. I grew up loving Harleys because my grandfather. Um, I got a job at the Harley dealership in, in Upper. Great job, great money, like I was able to pay off all my fines, get off probation. 
like something I thought would never happen. And I was staying sober in the process. And uh, I remember one day I had uh, my sponsor, I reached out, I was just, I, I was having a meltdown that day. Cause you know, life still hits you. And Absolutely. not only, yeah. It really does, it doesn't stop coming. No, right. But not only am I, am I trying to stay clean and sober, but I'm also trying to navigate the wreckage that I'd left behind and now I'm coming back into. Um, so like my oldest daughter, she, it took her almost a year and a half before she'd even talk to me when I got home. And that was fine because I, I had hurt her so much and she'd saw too much. Like she was tired of my lies. Like, okay, she says she's gonna get clean and do better, but it never happens. So I, I I knew I had to truly prove it to her this time. So I wasn't pushing myself at her. I wasn't trying to force her to talk to me. I knew it would happen. I trusted the process. Like if I keep doing the next right thing, everything is going to work out the way it's supposed to. And that has kind of been my peace of mind, this whole recovery journey. Like I, yeah, things stress me out and I get super emotional. That's just who I am. But I know that it's gonna work out the way it's supposed to. Um, life gets real shitty and it gets real hard but today i know how to deal with things without having to pick up and i i know i have people i can reach out to that are going to talk me through it um but it was actually my friend Brittany and i were on our way back from an na weekend like hog roast and it was like nine o'clock at night and i get a call from my mom and said <laughs> Your daughter's here and she wants to see her mother. And I said, okay, I'm on my way. Like I dropped everything I was doing. Like that was the moment I had been waiting for, for so long um, because I had, I had been getting supervised visits with my boys, so. And it worked out and now she's a brand new mom and doing amazing things and happily married and couldn't be more proud of her. Um, but I guess what got me to where I, I am today, you guys, I'm sorry. I feel, I truly feel like I'm all over the place right now. You've been very easy to follow. Okay. Yeah, if that is, if that is of any uh, encouragement to you, you've been very easy to follow. Maybe it's because all the thoughts in my head I'm trying to like. Yeah, maybe it's not as easy for you to be following what's going on inside the brain, but right. for us on the outside, okay. we're good. Thank you, because that's where I'm at right now. Um, so I was working at the Harley dealership and a family friend was actually the IT guy at Century Health. And he said, you know, we need people like you at Century Health. Like, I didn't even know what peer support was. And he was telling me, and I'm like, they're not gonna hire me, I'm a felon. He's like, no, that's exactly- That's what we want. That's what they want. <laughs> like, like you're you're doing good and like you're, you're killing this recovery thing. And he's like, you got a lot of clean time. And like, he's like, you're actually like thriving and not just surviving. He's like, we need people like you to help and I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I submitted my resume and I got a call a week later, went to my interview and he, he's like, you'll hear from me <laughs> in about a week. Well, I had just left my interview and he calls me a half hour later, I was still in the car. He's like, so you wanna start January 2nd? I'm like, okay, <laughs> done. And you know, when I started this journey, 
my passion was substance use because that's what I knew. That's what I had survived. You know, even with my substance use disorder, like I struggled with major depressive disorder. Like I had several suicide attempts. Um, thank God failed. Um, and major anxiety. Um, but learning that my substance use kind of amplified these, (laughs) which my doctor tried telling me this, my first time in recovery, I'm like, oh, you're full of shit. I take the drugs because of these. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. (laughs) You get this under control. I think these will be better too. Um, Anyway, when I first started at Century, um, I was on the ACT team. So that is like severe and persistent mental health disorders. And I had- I have a sneeze, sorry. No, you're fine. I'm distracting because I'm trying to like, not put it in the microphone. You're fine. (laughs) And now I've talked about it, so now it's not happening. You're fine. So just be mindful if I'm looking up and weird. That's what I'm trying to do. You're fine. Um, but yeah, when I started on the ACT team at Century Health, um, I was new to the severe mental health. Um, but I fell in love with it. Like, oh my gosh. Like, this is kind of where my heart is. But I was also still passionate about the substance use too. But then it's just all encompassing. And I'm like, okay, I'm... I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like I loved my job at the Harley dealership and I made good money, but I, I felt like I needed more. Um, it felt empty to me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I loved my, I loved my customers. I I loved my job. I loved the bike runs we got to go on all the time, but it was just, I, I felt like I didn't survive this journey to just, work at a Harley dealership, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I started at Century Health in 2018, um, which eventually became FRC. Um, I got to work on the forensic team and go into the jail and get people into treatment. Um, I have met so many amazing people in this community that are um, so supportive of recovery and supportive of me, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have, I have mentors that like, I know I can call if I'm really struggling with a situation. Um, just, I don't know, uh, the life, like I said, life will still knock you on your ass sometimes, but I know I'm in a place where I have so much more to be grateful for. <laughs> I used to dream of where I'm at today. Um, I used to pray for what I have today and I have to remind myself of that sometimes. Um, so I just went through something very scary with this neck surgery. You know, I went into the ER with migraine, um, and a week later (laughs) I was in the operating room getting my spine cut in half. Basically, um, this is probably the hardest thing I've ever been through in my entire life. It's scary because for one, I had to take pain medication. Um, Mm -hmm. But for two, I had to be completely dependent on everybody else. Uh, Eight years ago, I probably wouldn't have survived this. Today, I had the supports in place, uh, even though it was hard and it's still hard for me to ask for help. And my 18 year old son who still lives with me almost like duked it out a few times, <laughs> but we got through it. Um, and I'm in the home stretch now, but I, I couldn't imagine not, not being where I'm at and going through 
what I'm going through, what I went through with this. Um, even my job has been amazing. Uh, and if I, if I wouldn't have overcome what I have overcome, like I said, I don't, I don't know if I would have survived this. Uh, I don't know, like. You've built a lot of resiliency I over the years. I have, um, but I've also built, I, I can't express enough the support and the love and the people I have in my life. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be where I am without them. Mm -hmm. You know, I, my best friend Nikki, my best friend Brittany, and then I have, it's my trifecta, my best friend Shannon. Um, you know, I actually met her when I started working here in Hancock County um, and we've gotten so close and, you know, she struggled with, uh, she's got some disability issues. Um, she suffered a stroke 14 years ago. So she, going through this, like she's been my rock. And it was funny because she was also my taxi driver, which was scary <laughs> when I was going to all my appointments and stuff through all this when I couldn't drive. Yeah, it was, we were definitely a Motley crew. <laughs> But it's, I don't know, it's incredible the life I have today. And I, I just, I don't know. I don't know where to go from here. Like the next right thing, the next right thing. Yes. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep um, helping the next person. You know, what we do at the health department with our syringe service program and our harm reduction, like we are connecting with the people that aren't connecting with anybody else right now. The ones that, you know, I, I remember what it's like being there. And I honestly wish that when I was still suffering, I had the people in my life, like the resources in the community, like what we have here. But who knows, I might not have been ready for it. So there's that too. <laughs> Sometimes things work out as they should. Yeah. And we don't always understand why. Right. And that's, I trust the process. That's yep. where I'm at. Yep. Um, well, I, for again, we'll share with you. Very easy to follow. Thank you. I hope that you <laughs> don't stress yourself out or worry too much yeah, about that. I have no that. idea what you talked about. <laughs> I don't know what I just said. Like this whole hour, what, hour and a half. I remember our conversation prior to my story. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think that you've definitely hit on a lot of highlights in your life. I've lived your life, so I don't know all of the things that have happened to know how few highlighted everything. But um, I think I have a great sense of what you've been through and how you've overcome it and where you're at today. Thank so, you. Thanks. Is there anything else that you think that you might want to say before we wrap things up? Uh, I don't know. I want to hear Dominic do a radio <laughs> radio post. <laughs> just kidding. No, um, no. I just, I guess, I just want to express a whole lot of gratitude um, for the people in my life that are going to hear this, um, that know who you are, and you're a big part of my life. I thank you, and I'm grateful for you, and I can't imagine this life without you. Well, I would like to express my gratitude for you sharing your story <laughs> today you. um, and taking the time out of your day to do so and being willing to be a source of hope for someone else as well. Absolutely.
Thank you. All right. Well, um, thank you again. And to our listeners, tune in next time for more inspiring stories from our recovery community. You have been listening to the I Am Somebody podcast, a collaborative project with Focus Recovery and Wellness Community, NAMI Hancock County, and LGBTQ plus Spectrum of Finley. If you or someone you know is in need of emergency services, call 911. If you are feeling suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. If you are facing a crisis situation, you can connect with a crisis counselor by texting HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. If you are in Hancock County, Ohio, you can call Focus Recovery and Wellness Community at 419-423-5071 from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday. NAMI Hancock County can be reached at 567 525-3435, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. Support for LGBTQ plus youths and adults can be found at LGBTQ plus Spectrum of Finley by emailing contact at spectrumoffinleylgbt.org. Outside of Hancock County, Ohio, you can use the internet to search for recovery community organizations or contact NAMI National at 800 950-6264 from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday. LGBTQ plus youths can contact the Trevor Hotline at 866-488-7386. If you are a victim of domestic violence, please call 800-799-7233. If you are a victim of sexual assault, please call 800-656-4673. Your hosts today were Larry Betts and Bailey Kerr. Marketing support was provided by Amber Keir. I'm your compere, Jazz Bradley. This podcast was made possible by the support of Associated Charities. The song used for the I Am Somebody podcast is A Walk in the Light by Zach Fletcher. The song was used under permission by the copyright holder. Thank you for listening. I am somebody.